R.J.M. Blackett, or Richard Blackett, is the author of The Captive's Quest for Freedom, Fugitive Slaves, The 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, and The Politics of Slavery, which was published in 2018. It is an epic work that took the author 18 years to research and write. David Blight observed that it was the most important, thorough, and revealing study ever written of fugitive slaves in history. It's hard for me to imagine a more meaningful bit of praise. In this interview, I tried to focus on some of the central points of the book and began to grapple with how to revise how I teach about freedom seekers and the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law. It is a story of heroic resistance and agency, one that needs to be made front and center in our understanding of this time period. Uh, you made a decision to start every chapter in the book with a story of liberation. Can you explain your intention for that structural device? I use that approach because I firmly believe that it's the actions of the slaves, the enslaved, that matter. And that by taking their action, they had an impact not only on their lives, but on the the places that they left and the places to which they were going. Mm -hmm. uh, and those, those vignettes, those stories, I think helped me to capture or to paint a picture of what was going on at the time and at the place in which it was going on. Now, before we get to the focus of your book, which is really the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 and its aftermath, can you give a, a quick recap of the 1793 law and why some believe it was a dead letter by the middle of the 19th century? Well, the 1793 law is a law that is passed in order to, to put into effect the requirement, the constitutional requirements that speak of the need to find a way to return escaped slaves. But the, the 1793 law relies very heavily on states' abilities and their commitment to return the person who has escaped. And it has no mechanism. It doesn't provide a mechanism for the return of those people who have escaped. In the section three, which follows section through two, article four, section two, uh, deals with fugitives from justice. That means people who have committed a crime mm -hmm. and have escaped to another state. And it's very explicit, the mechanisms that uh, are set in place for that. It says uh, the governor of the, of the state in which the crime is committed appeals directly to the governor of the state in which the, the criminal is captured to extradite that person. There's nothing of the kind in the, in the, in the um, 1793 fugitive slave law. So it means that for many people in the slaves, in the enslaved states, uh, they are relying on the, the good faith and commitment and cooperation of the people in the, in the free states. And increasingly, it becomes apparent 
that cooperation is not as full as uh, the slaveholding states would like it to be. So that is why you begin to see an effort to change the law, or at least to put some teeth into the law to make it stronger. Now, looking at it from a perspective of states' rights and the role of the federal government, the debate's pretty fascinating. Uh, states' rights advocates were here asking for the national government to intervene because they weren't happy with what the other states were doing. Yes, so it, it, it's a curious twist uh, because the argument, the, the understanding is that the federal government, this is a federal issue. And this is the way that the federal government protects the rights of enslavers. And the, the, the southern states consistently push the line that the federal government has no authority, should not interfere with slavery. Yet they are insisting that the federal government help them to recapture slaves. Yeah, but it comes under the idea of comity, right? Yeah. Uh, you do something in order, in a, one state does something for another state in order to keep the union together. So that's the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. The Compromise of 1850 was actually five separate laws passed by Congress. Yeah. And in your book, you gave a quick recap of what other historians have said regarding whether it was an actual compromise. What's your take? And the case of the and the case of the fugitive slave law, it's not a compromise. Uh, it it is a concession on the part of northern states to do the bidding of the southern states. It's acquiescing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a compromise. They have given no. The southern states have given no ground on this issue. Not at all. The only the only compromise that they see as part of the larger compromise of eighteen fifty is that they agreed the slave trade should be abolished in Washington, D.C. Not slavery, but the slave trade. Mm -hmm. Because by 1850, and long before 1850, that has become an embarrassment to the national government. Because the world's representatives come to Washington, they look out of their window, and they see slave coffers rolling, walking down the road. That's not good for the image of a democratic society. Uh, that is committed to the equality of all. So for many, that is an easy give if you're a, if you're a slaveholder. So what the, what the slave trade people is just simply move their, their slave pens outside of the confines of Washington, D.C. So, but that is, that is the comp, that's the ground that the slaveholders gave in the, 18, in the Compromise of 1850. But in the case of the fugitive slave law, there's not an inch given. After passage, the, the law created considerable unrest in the North as black vigilance committees and other organizations found an array of ways to resist the law. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit that this is all new to me, uh, but it's going to become a staple of future classes uh, on the subject. And I'm wondering if, you know, if in your own experience as a, you know, a professor, uh, whether you whether students found the same, you know, were surprised in the same way. Let me admit that I rarely teach the things that I wrote about. Okay. <laughs> I, I because I I, li I like to keep some distance from it. But towards the close of the 
as I was getting close to finishing the book, I did, I did teach a course on the, what, on the Underground Railroad rather than the Fugitive Slave Law specifically. Uh, but and, and in discussions, in class discussions of the Underground Railroad, there were two things that struck me. Uh, one is that this, the generation that I was teaching still had a very rosy picture of the Underground Railroad. Uh, that all the good guys were in the North and all the bad, the baddies were in the South and the, the good guys were doing the, the, the work of the Lord and the others were not. So that was the first, that is the first myth that I had to disabuse them of. And the second one was they were generally surprised by the extent to which there was resistance to the law uh, in the fugitive, in, in the case of the fugitive slave law. But I tried to, to lower the temperature of that sort of anxiety and excitement and other things by taking them through the argument about uh, why this was not a good law. Uh, so that the debate from between January and August of 1850, so that by the end, I think people were not surprised, or some were surprised, but generally, they understood why people found this to be unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But in there is another message about uh, the way people by their action can influence not just law, but the weather, but whether laws can be implemented. Yeah, and for somebody who came of age in the 1960s, this is very appealing. <laughs> You know, that there are people out there who could say, no, we do not like this. Uh, and we don't think it's a good thing to have. And we can therefore do something about it. Uh, but they're doing, they're doing this outside of the confines of normal political discourse, or, or at least the political discourse that is taking place in Congress. And also legal discourse, that is, among those people who are implementing the law. So this is definitely an effort on the part, in spite of the odds, on the part of local communities who are trying to make sure that the people who come to them and seek help get some help. And in doing so, the law is resisted. Do you think that the... I mean, to, again, to me, this is new, and I'm not the only person I imagine who... Who felt that way um, that the lack of historical coverage of of that resistance of the vigilance committees and other forms of resistance was purposeful like a you know sort of along akin to the lost cause revisionism I mean were they were these people erased essentially or is it just you know uh, on purpose or is that a natural consequence of sometimes we we don't do a good job with our history no, I, I think historians knew, but they didn't know of the extent of it because nobody took the time as <laughs> it took a lot of time to get to this because in order to do it, um, in order to get at it, uh, you had to find a way to understand what was going on among, in a play, among a people who left us no records. Mm -hmm. The enslaved left us no records in this thing. The only thing we, the only way I got at it by, is, was by pinpointing the places where they failed. 
because by fail by when I what I mean by that is that uh, a crisis occurred. There was tension in a local community. Uh, this had to go to court, or at least to a hearing under the terms of the uh, of the fugitive slave law, and that those hearings were covered extensively by local newspapers. And the only way then you can get at what was happening is to delve into the local newspapers. And that, that takes a lot of time because in the decade of the 1850s, there were, there were a bus, a, a, there were a truckload of local newspapers. And you can't just take one newspaper because that might be a, a liberal newspaper as a po and you miss then what the conservatives are doing because if this is a political um, issue, you have to look at how both sides see the issue in order to understand what's going on. Once I pinpointed a place, I had to find count, um, multiple newspapers that have different political agendas in order to understand what was going on. So it, there's a level of tedium in, in doing this kind of research uh, that normally folks don't do. And by that time, I'm a senior professor, so I have no pressure on me. I just do what the hell I want to do. So uh, so in that sense, I was able to spend, to really spend a lot of time yeah. on, on, on digging into local sources. Uh, and I would not... I. And I was lucky in the sense that most of these newspapers, by by the time I started, most of them were did, uh, uh, were microfilmed. So it means it's a technology that wasn't available to people 40, 50 years ago, yeah. who may have been interested in doing that. Because in order to do it, you would have had to go to the town or the city. I could bring the town and city to me by reading the newspapers. So that, that made it possible. So I don't know if anybody, I don't know if people deliberately ignored it, uh, but they just didn't have a way to get at it or have the, the time and the luxury to get at it, so. I see. Well, that was 18 years well spent. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> Do you have the sense that advocates of the fugitive slave law like James Mason and Daniel Webster were true believers, meaning that they thought the law would work as it as they claimed, or did they not care about the free people who would be caught up in the net, railroaded into a life of slavery? Oh, oh they, they didn't care about the latter, uh, because as as Henry Clay said, they are not part of the political system; they are outside of the political system. The political the political system turns on the guys who are sitting in this room, so to speak, in the halls of Congress, not people outside. And that is what shocked them. That is genuinely shocked them that there were people who have who were not who had not invested in the political system, who were taking a stand and doing this, and and therefore their reaction tended to. Uh, to to center on whether or not these people were acting illegally and and violating all the principles of normal political discussion and give and take. So, um, but they knew, some knew, at least 
as I think I, I mentioned somewhere, Jefferson Davis, of all people, knew that this was not going to work. He opposed the law, uh, not, not for any philanthropic or humanitarian reasons, but he says if you're going to pass a law like this, the people who are supposed to impose the law, that is those people in the North, have to be committed to doing it. And he saw no sign that they were. So for some people, uh, this, was not, this was not going to work. But, but I, I think for others, people like Clay knew that something had to be done. It was better to do something than not to do nothing at all. And, I, and, and ever since 1793, they've been trying to pass a law that was more effective than the, one, than the first fugitive slave law. So something, was, something had to be done. Something that was really fascinating was looking at the commissioners who were in charge of hearing the cases of people who were being accused of being, uh, you know, fugitive slaves. And I thought there was a nice pairing uh, or a natural pairing of Charles Stetson of Cleveland, uh, who took a, a particularly strong stance on one side. And uh, you could pick your take your pick. But I, Richard McAllister of Harrisburg seems like a, a good contrast to show the range of how uh, the fugitive slave law was enforced and not enforced. Yeah, well, well, uh, Richard McAllister is a piece of work. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only way to describe it. But here's the problem. What you have done is you, the law elevates uh, low-level bureaucrats with some legal training uh, to conduct these hearings. And these hearings are not supposed to be trials. They're, they are peremptory. The person walks in with the evidence and the authorities walk in with the suspected escapee. Um, the commissioner listens to or reads the, the, the warrant of arrest that is taken out in the, in, at the place from which the person escapes and it describes, usually describes the individual uh, the commissioner looks at the warrant, looks at the person in the court in the room before him, and says yea or nay. That's it. And there's no appeal. The person has no right to speak for themselves. The person has no right for representation. And here's a problem that immediately comes in. There are lawyers who are anti-slavery lawyers who walk into the hearing and say, I am here to represent the individual. The commissioner says, no, you're not supposed to be in here. And, he say, and they say, yes, I am. And the, their mere presence creates tensions in the hearing room. And, it, and what was supposed to be merely a hearing under the law becomes something that looks like a case because the lawyers are raising questions and, and the commissioners are having to deal with this problem. So people like Richard McAllister simply signed the, the, the paper and sent people away. And it meant that if I am an agent of a slaveholder, I could go to McAllister and say, listen, a, a slave I'm looking for is in Harrisburg. I need, I need to get a warrant from you for arrest. Or alternatively, as an agent, I could just snatch the person off the street and take them before McAllister. 
and I, I have my warrant from back home, and that is enough proof as far as McAllister was concerned. But the, the people who came in in a way to defend uh, the fugitive slaves came, out, came up with all kinds of wonderful devices. As they said, this is impossible. This person was living here long before he's supposed to escape. And that throws the burden of proof back onto, back onto the, person, the, the agent of, of the slaveholder. Or alternatively, they say, uh, how, what is this, the description in the warrant? And the description in the warrant, as you know, they say something simple like, uh, he's, he's a black male, age about 25, 5 foot 11, and all of those details become grounds to challenge the description. So they, they say, he, the, the person before you, Mr. McAllister, or whoever the commissioner is, is not, a, is, is not black. <laughs> and that immediately throws... So there are some cases that become sort of anthropological exercises in, the, in which people discuss the nature of blackness. Uh, and so the multiple ways the, the legal folks who are partial to abolition, they come up with multiple ways to challenge what is supposedly a simple hearing. So McAllister sends rules to send somebody back. Under the law, there's no appeal. That is, that is it. The only alternative is either to abduct the slave and take them to Canada, which happened in a number of times. So the, the, the limit of the law breathes a level of violence because it doesn't permit normal legal procedure. Because the law says this is not a normal legal procedure. So that's, that's the quandary that people find themselves in. Uh, so those were some of the ways uh, the, the law created a problem. And finally, and I think most importantly, because of its limits, it means that any black person could be picked up. So if I'm a free black and I have always been free, that is, my parents were freed at the end. If I'm in Pennsylvania, my parents were freed either at the end of the revolution or after the, the Emancipation Act of 1780. I have no free papers, but under the terms of the fugitive slave law, the burden of a proof is on me to prove I am not who that person says I am. And that's impossible. So what, one of the things that we, we need increasingly to do is to examine what was called the reverse underground railroad. That is the number of people, free blacks, who were taken out of the North and sent into slavery. Mm. And that was substantial. But that would take another <laughs> 18, 20 years, and I don't have it. Somebody else would have to do it. And some people are already beginning to do it. But they're beginning to do it at cert in certain isolated spots where you can dig deep into the records over a long period of time and come up with some idea of how it, it works. But some we need at some point to do it on a national scale, because I think that is one of the horrors of the, of the fugitive slave law. 
the way it affected free blacks. Now, you, just to go back to the question for one second, like McAllister was just everybody was guilty or everybody was, you know, automatically more or less he would send. He was very he was very proud of that. He says, I sent back everybody and he thumped his chest. He was very proud of it. But to contrast that with Charles Stetson, who basically refused to send, you know, to to convict or whatever the right word would be. Yeah. Yeah. There were a number. Of, there were a few like that. That is that is one problem that the law had. The other problem is the law couldn't find people enough people to be commissioners, because if you were in Terre Haute, Indiana, you know, Terre Haute is on a, on on, a, on, on a, an underground railroad escape route. Uh, but the point is, they're not enough. They're not people. You cannot find people, and you would have to find a person who is committed to the law before you would name them a commissioner. So you wouldn't call, <laughs> in many instances, uh, there, were, there were other Quakers, for instance, who, uh, who were commissioners, who found themselves in all kinds of trouble with their family. You know, wise pressure in them not to make certain rulings. So, um, so that was a problem as well. The law could not, could not police, could not find the manpower to have to effectively cover the entire northern states with with commissioners, so people would come from way out of town to beat their beat a path to McAllister's door in order to get a warrant, and then have to travel all the way from wherever they came uh, in order to pick up the person. So it 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 wasn't the most effective system. Can you talk about the role of women, both black and white, in the protests and resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act? I think, let me, let me preface it by saying women were always, black women were always part of the movement of resistance slavery wherever it existed. Uh, there are wonderful stories in the Caribbean that I know of, particularly. There are also stories of people who were who resisted the enforcement of the fugitive slave law. But they were, many of them were people who have, whose names we do not know. But we know from descriptions in the, of the newspapers that the crowds outside the hearing rooms were in some cases led and driven by women. Uh, even if women were not leading them, women were egging the men in the crowd to make sure they stood their ground. So women are women play black women play a critical role as as sort of foot soldiers of the the group the army of people who were resisting the law. Um, and one of the one of the unfortunate things is that because of the the conventions of the time, the records of these cases very rarely mention an individual woman's name. There are a few. And in addition, white abolitionist movement in places where the abolitionist movement was strong, Philadelphia being a case in point, attended these hearings every day for the duration of the hearing and sat in the room in solidarity. Sometimes they interrupted the proceedings, but many times they were just there, their presence, to show the commissioner that what he was doing was not acceptable and to declare to the system 
by their presence that they were opposed to its enforcement. So yes, women were there at all times, but uh, I, I found it very frustrating that I was not always able to identify who they were. If uh, teachers were looking to use some primary sources on the enforcement of and resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act, is there anything that you might be able to recommend that would be good to use with students? I mean, are there transcripts of any of the commission, you know, the, the proceedings of the commissioners or anything like that? No, not really. They are, but I would start, as I did when I, when I taught any classes on this nature, I started with a copy of the 18 Fugitive Slave Law. Because it's if you print it out, it's about five pages long. So it's not, it's not very long. But you can go through with students and read and discuss each of the clauses of the law and what their implications are. Because some of it is pretty stark, especially when you get to things like habeas corpus or trial by jury. Everybody, most most kids know what a trial by jury is. So the, the denial of those basic jurisprudential traditions gives you an opportunity to, to discuss, to get into why this is different. And it also, because of the way the hearings are conducted, it can help you to then talk about what does this mean for kidnapping of free Blacks? So that, so. I always start, I would always recommend people to look at, to really do an analysis of the law itself by distributing. I mean, you can go on, on the computer and type 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, and there it is. Yeah. It comes right up. Uh, and there are some, and for local, for local places, if you're in Harrisburg or if you're in Philadelphia, or if you're in New York or any other little town where there's a fugitive slave incident, you can get the newspapers of that day. And, and the newspapers proudly give you a blow-by-blow -blow coverage okay. of what was going on. So in that way, you, you set your young students off on a kind of research mm -hmm. journey that they might find very, very beneficial. And it, and it sends them to the library uh, and for some people, modern people, I didn't do it, but some of those newspapers are digitized. So you can just sit on the computer and type in the name of the individual uh, and you will get the case come up. In some places where the newspapers have not been digitized, that creates a problem. But nonetheless, you can go to the local library and the local library has the newspapers. Uh, and that's where you can find it. So I think... That's what makes it an interesting the topic, an interesting tool of research, uh, of the way to do research and the way to analyze documents. Great, thank you. Um, all right, so let's close with uh, my last question is, uh, again, I think one of the most, you know, going all the way back to, you know, how you chose to, to open each chapter, I think certainly getting across to students the idea that resistance was, you know, significant, uh, commonplace, widespread. Um, uh, for me, the most compelling uh, example of resistance that I read in, in your book was what happened in Christiana in, in 1851. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you have one or two other examples that, you know, just if you just rattle off one or two specific ones that you think would, would resonate 
you know, as examples that teachers could use with students? Well, Christiana is the one where violence, where it got very violent and people lost their lives. Uh, but there's another that I think I mentioned in the book, or if, if not in, in the big book, at least I gave a series of lectures at Penn State in which I opened with the one on a man called Henry Banks, uh, from who, who was in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, he escaped from the Shenandoah Valley and, and all, all Banks wrote letters back to his slaveholder saying, bye, I'm gone, I'm not coming back. And you ask yourself the question, well, why do that? If you're gone, just go. Why, are you just thumbing your nose at the man? Um, so Banks wrote his first letter from New, and he had it dated New York City. And if you look at the journey that he took, where he said he went, he could never have gotten to New York City in the time <laughs> in which, in which he said he had escaped. So he's he's doing something, and I suspect what he's doing is he is throwing his master off his owner off the his his route of escape and he said to he said to the man look i am i'm going either to buffalo or to canada which is reasonable um and if he's in new york well then it looks like but his but his owner did not take that did not bite on that one because he had a pretty good idea where banks was going and he knew he was going to philadelphia so he sent slave catchers after him. The slave catchers couldn't get banks because the, the slave catcher said it was looking, was like looking for a needle in a haystack. <laughs> there were too many escaped slaves in Philadelphia and the police weren't even helping it. <laughs> Weeks later, the, the banks writes another, another letter, this, this time from Western Pennsylvania along the Allegheny River. And he says to his owner, um, I've changed my mind. I'm going to California. <laughs> and the owner again said, <laughs> he's not buying this because he knows that there are a group of former enslaved people who have settled in Western Pennsylvania, just below Pittsburgh. And the owner suspects that Banks, that's where Banks is going. So he sends another slave catcher after him. That didn't work. And finally, the owner, gets, the owner gets a letter, a third letter from Henry Banks saying, dated and postmark Hamilton, Canada. <laughs> he says, I have arrived. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome, Bob. Thanks a million. All right. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. <laughs>